All week long, we've been studying or we've been uh, going back and forth in the the book of Ruth and uh, carrying that theme, Fiercely Faithful. And it's been a wonderful thing, sight to see all of the, the, the staff of VBS. Uh, um, for those of you who can remember, when was the last time uh, this church did VBS? Anybody remember? 2007? It's been over 16 years ago. I don't even know exactly when. Nobody can tell me. Can anybody tell me the exact 2007 was the last time? And, uh, and so that's been how many years ago then? 16 years ago. 15, 16 years ago. I thought it was 20 years ago. Well, it might as well have been. It's been that long. And it's, it's a beautiful sight to see. I remember, uh, I think it was in late January or early February when um, Julie and I decided to go and, and visit um, um, Grace and Jim and the family over at their house. And I had one thing in mind, and that is to ask Grace if she would lead a VBS crew this year. And I, you know, I did my normal, you know, pitch and, and saying how, how important it is to reach out to our children and their families. And, and um, lo and behold, she said yes. <laughs> she said yes. And, and so... Um, uh, that's been the beginning of something beautifully ordinary, as I, say, as I call it, as you will see in today's sermon, and something that I would love repeated year in, year out, every single year, from now on, and perhaps even until Jesus comes. VBS is a beautiful, is an important part of our outreach to our community, and for good reasons that you will find out soon enough. But before uh, we get into uh, the sermon for today, would you please bow your heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, here we are, your people. We are here. We are eager to hear word from you. Please fill our, our, our hunger and our thirst for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Naomi's tragedy is part of a bigger tragedy we find in the book of Judges. Um, in the book of Judges, at the very end of that book, in um, cha- on chapter uh, 21 and verse 25, we find these cryptic words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. I felt a bit like that when I was driving in the streets of Manila for about a week and a half when we were vacationing, it was really not so much a vacation. It was a combination of vacation and, and a business trip. And when I realized what I had really known all along, but it was kind of different when you're driving as when you're just kind of a passenger when you're just growing up. That the rules, uh, the, the traffic rules in, in the Philippines a lot of times are optional. <laughs> they really are optional. And so I start, you know, I, I, um, as, soon as, we, as, as soon as we landed in Manila, from, you know, we, we had spent about 10, 11 days in, on the island of Palawan. If you can Google that sometime, uh, some, sometime you will find out that Palawan is, is stretched out on the, on the western seaboard, western side of the Philippine Islands, just right around the middle part of the Philippine Islands, all the way down to about the southern part. And it goes from northeast to southwest like a chili pepper. 
And it's composed of about a hundred different little islands. And so we were on those islands, uh, some, a few of those islands for about 10, 11 days. And it was fantastic. I didn't get to drive. I had no cars. So we were dependent on people driving us around. It was fantastic. I could show you pictures uh, some other day. And then after that, we flew from Palawan to Manila, where I'd, you know, I'd spent, uh, we spent a couple days in, in, in Manila, where I, I'd, I'd done, I did some lectures um, there in, in, in our um, medical um, center there in Manila, and then down on to, uh, to south of Manila, where I did the same lecture uh, at the university. And I went and, um, and I... Um, I rented a car. And as soon as I started driving, all the history came back to me that the rules, <laughs> the traffic rules in Manila are, are often optional. I remember one time and I was driving down, the, down this road and all of a sudden I have two motor, motorcycles just zoom past me on both sides of me at the same time. I'm like, what's happening here? And I slowed down. We would slow down to, uh, to a, a, a crawl. And suddenly this two-lane highway becomes a six-lane highway. And everybody thinks that they're, you know, one-upping everyone else. And what's happening is that everybody's crawling down to a halt because people think that by getting in front of the other and creating more lanes, everybody would be all right. But the funny thing about the whole thing was, and this was an observation of the, children, the kids, my kids and Rihanna, was that you know, uh, they, they started asking me, um, how come with all of those people that are not obeying traffic rules, nobody seems to be getting into accident, traffic accidents? Why is that? And so I started thinking, yeah, why is that? This kind of uh, this, uh, um, controlled chaos seems to be working out for everybody except me. Because I was flagged down uh, by, um, uh, by, by a traffic enforcer once, and I bumped somebody's bike uh, another time while I wasn't really, I was trying to pay attention to uh, uh, the GPS, and, and, and Micah was, was serving, as, uh, Micah was serving as, as, as my guide, and I wasn't very successful. But everyone else, uh, because, because there's a time for everything. <laughs> You're hearing about this for the first time because there's a time for everything. <laughs> it was not. It was. <laughs> oh, boy. And so here we were. Here we were. And um, it, was, it was controlled chaos. And I was like, why is it? Why is it that this is the case? And, I, and, I, and, and something dawned on me. And I realized that it's just the case because everybody... Everybody seems to have a way of doing what's, what we call in, in the United States as defensive driving. Everybody was doing their own kind of defensive driving. And so somebody would stick their, you know, the, the nose of their car in front of another car and everybody would just give way. It was, a, it, it was controlled chaos. And it, I, was, I was like, oh, I'm really back in the old country. And it was fantastic, almost fantastic for me to, uh, to be part of that yet again. A little bit of that was going on in the, in the book of Judges, you see. And we find the book of Ruth is smack dab in the middle of all that chaos. When God's people were learning their way, actually were actually learning how not to be obedient to God. And because of their disobedience to God, they went through these, the cycle of, you know, of, of, of pain and misery as they suffered the consequences of their own actions. And so we find this um, 
this, fan, this beautiful, heartwarming story of Ruth, smack dab in the middle of all this, you know, this general, general sea, of, sea of unfaithfulness within uh, the people of Israel. And we find at the, at the end, at the very end of Judges, uh, of the book of Judges, the words, all the people... Uh, all the people did what was right in their eyes. And then right then we turn the page and we see the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth begins and puts us smack dab in the middle of the judges when it says, in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled. Pulling us back. Helping us to see the context of this beautiful heartwarming story of Ruth. There was a famine in the land. It says, And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab. He and his wife and two sons. The name of the, of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech was an Ephratite, meaning that he lived, his family lived in a small town of Bethlehem. And that hill country of Bethlehem and Judah. And so they went because of, because of famine. And, you know, there are several ways we can interpret this famine. I mean, famines uh, tore through the land. And it was really something that was a regular occurrence in, in the land. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but Scripture would have us also believe uh, that this is not just an ordinary famine. This is a famine. It's one of those famines that we saw in, 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 in the book of Judges as a result of the general unfaithfulness of the people. And here in the midst of all of that, we're about to read a story of faithfulness in the sea of unfaithfulness. The story of Ruth. The story of what happens to Naomi and Ruth and those few individuals that decided to be faithful to God even amidst the sea of unfaithfulness surrounding them. Naomi's tragedy is set within this larger tragedy of unfaithfulness. The unfaithfulness we find in the judges, where people did what was right in their own eyes. They could have been driving in Manila all those years. Living and driving doesn't matter. There was a funeral. There was a funeral there in Moab. And by the way, Moab is just the country east of, uh, of Judah. It was a uh, the, the Moabites, uh, you will remember, are cousins to the Israelites, descendants of Lot, uh, but they have not had, they did, they did not really have a good relationships with, with their cousins, the Moabites. Um, and the Moabites chose a very different path when it comes to their faith and to their gods. Um, the family of Elimelech with his two sons and his wife, Naomi, go and they decide to leave the promised land for the land of Moab because there was no food in the land. And no sooner had they arrived there than that, uh, that, uh, uh, Elimelech dies and there was a funeral. The funeral happens first. Then after the funeral, perhaps a few more years, and his, you know, their, uh, uh, Naomi and, 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 uh, and uh, Elimelech's uh, uh, sons, sickly they may have been because their names tell us so, Malan and Kilion, they go and get themselves Moabitess wives. But these sickly, two sickly sons of Elimelech also, also die. And so there was another funeral, two funerals. And so in total, there were, three, there were two weddings and three funerals. Feels like one of those movies. Three weddings, sorry, two weddings and three funerals. And so Naomi 
feeling that she's really down and out and the Lord has really, has really been hard on her and her life, decides to make her way back to the promised land. She had heard news that there's now plenty of food back in the promised land. And so she starts to, to head back. By now, she's, she, has, she had two uh, um, uh, daughters-in-law with her. Um, the name of one is Orpah, and the, the name of the other one is Ruth, to whom this, the, the little book, this little book of four chapters was named. And so there they were. You could just imagine them walking, and suddenly Ruth or, Mo, uh, or Naomi, you know, she, she begins to have doubts about going back to, um, to Bethlehem, to Judah, with, as, as she herself was as a widow, and in those days, widows, I mean, she had no more sons to give, and, and, she, and, and so uh, she decided to ask her two daughters-in-law to not go with her. This faith of Naomi to watch out for her own um, daughters-in-law and deciding as well to remain faithful to God despite of the fact that life has been hard was something that was not taken for granted. It was noticed. It was noticed no other, by no other than her two daughters-in-law, specifically by one of those daughters-in-law by the name of Ruth. And so as they were heading back and, and Naomi, you know, broke the news that I'd much rather, for your own sakes, children, my daughters-in-law, I'd much rather that you go back to your families, to your people, and not go with me because there is no future for you in Israel. There's no future for you in Israel. Two Moabites, Moabite women, widows in Israel. What future do you have there? Go back to your family. And Orpah listens to her mother-in-law's sane advice. But Ruth would have none of it. And so Ruth is affected by her mother-in-law's faith. And her mother-in-law's decisions. And her mother-in-law's watching out for her. Um, Ruth takes notice of all this and... And she says, you know, I'm not going to go back because I will cast my lot with you. And so we find this heartwarming story at the beginning of, of uh, the middle and, and, and the ending of, verse, uh, of chapter 1. Um, something that we normally, you know, I've done this myself until one of my professors told me that it's, it's really out of context. But, you know, I disagree with him now. Because we usually use these words that we find, the words of Ruth uh, that we find in chapter 1 in weddings, don't we? we? It usually makes its way in weddings where these beautiful words um, uh, of, of Ruth, starting, with, uh, uh, starting from verse, verse 16. But Ruth said, do not press me to leave you, to turn back from following you. And then these beautiful words, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, will be, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do thus to me, and more so, more so as well, if even death parts me from you. There's a reason why we use this in weddings. 
because it, it's, the, it's the kind of attachment, it's the kind of loyalty that we want to see in marriages, in people's marriages, right? This bond of loyalty, this strong attachment that Ruth had for her mother-in-law is something that we want everybody to have with one another. Isn't that true? But there's something much more here than just Ruth being loyal to Naomi. Ruth had taken notice of Naomi's faith and is now bonding herself, attaching herself not only to Naomi, but also and more importantly to Naomi's God. This statement right here, even though I cannot say whether or not uh, you know, it happened right then when she was saying it, this is really, this statement right here encapsulizes Ruth's conversion story. Because of the strength of her mother-in-law's faith, Ruth was led to the foot, as we might say, of a cross. This is a conversion. This is her conversion story encapsulized in these two verses. Ruth takes notice. He, she gives her life to God. And she starts to flex her, her own faithfulness, her own faith muscles, so to speak. She, and, she start, we, and, and we start to notice in the story how uh, uh, Ruth's faith exhibits two things. It ex, uh, her faith exhibits boldness and exhibits that loyalty that we've just seen. Whether you, where, where you go, I will go. If, you know, where you die, I will die. And so on. And so Ruth, as we find in the story, begins to take care of her mother-in-law. And, and it was hard going for them. And they happened to, be, they happened to come to, to Bethlehem, to arrive in Bethlehem, just when, beginning, when, when, har, when barley harvest was starting. We find that at the very end of chapter 2, verse 22. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley Harvest, And here comes a series of events um, precipitated by Ruth's um, loyalty and her boldness. And we see, uh, you know, here we notice a series of, of events. Happenstance, we might say, although perhaps not. As Ruth meets Boaz, and in turn Boaz, Boaz takes notice of Ruth. So we find this um, kind of a, a domino effect of sorts. We find Ruth noticing Naomi and Naomi's faith. And then we find Ruth, as Ruth begins to, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to make both ends meet and, and try to live off, uh, you know, the kindness of, of, of the, uh, of the towns, townsfolk there in Bethlehem. Um, we find these words, by the way, if, we, if, you, if you go to chapter 2 um, of, of Ruth, it's, it, it begins with verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, a, a farmer, okay, whose name was Boaz. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of, of grain behind someone in whose sight I, might, I may find favor. She, she said to her, Go, my daughter. So now they're planning, you know, you know we need to eat and there's no food. And, and so we need, to, we need to eat. We need to find food. And so, verse 3, we were told, she went. 
So uh, Ruth went. She came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. There's, uh, uh, some of you will remember that there's, there's a, a uh, cultural practice that's actually mandated by the Lord in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, the Pentateuch, in the first books, five books of, of Scripture, that, you know, um, that if you own land and you have this field and you're doing harvest, that you are to allow uh, uh, poor people to glean behind the reapers. In fact, you know, remembering that and my own, um, my own uh, uh, experience of, uh, of growing up in an agricultural society, actually it was also practiced back there where, where I grew up. Uh, we would let, periodically, my mom would let somebody glean Behind, behind the reapers. But, you know, gleaning behind the reapers, there's not much there. Because, especially if you, if, if you own land and, then, and, you, and you don't have enough people to, to reap your harvest, you're going to go and hire somebody. And you're not going to hire somebody who's not good at it. You're going to hire somebody that knows how to reap. And, it's, you know, they're gonna go, they go fast. And they hardly miss a thing. They hardly miss a thing. And so gleaning behind the reapers will not produce you a lot of harvest. But Ruth meets Boaz. And Boaz, we're told, is no ordinary man. But we, you know, we, and our, our story keeps, keeps going. And, 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 and midway down verse 3, it says, As it happened, as it happened. I want you to mark those, that, that you know, cross that or, or mark that, that phrase. As it happened... She came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech, perhaps a cousin of Elimelech's. And then in verse 4, just then Boaz came from Bethlehem. Our, nar- our, narrator, our, our narrator seems to be telling us that this is sort of a happenstance. As it happened just then, then we know the rest of the story. Ruth goes and gleans behind the reapers. And then as Boaz notices this, this lady, this woman, dutifully picking out what was left behind by these professional reapers, perhaps hired by Boaz because they're good at it. And you can just imagine Boaz looking at this, this woman and how dutifully she's going about her business, looking for what's left behind the reapers, finding only a few, but never giving up, never giving up. She keeps going, she keeps going, finding one here, one kernel, another one here, and, and what have you. And then she, he takes notice and, and asks the question, who is this woman? And then they told her, him who it was. And of course, by that time, everybody in town had heard about this Faithful Moabite woman, this widow, this um, daughter-in-law of another widow. And Boaz instructs his men, instructs his men to not only allow this woman, Ruth, to glean behind the the reapers, but to also mercifully, um, graciously, Leave more behind for her to glean. It's an amazing story of how faithfulness begets faithfulness. And how people take notice of the ordinary things that we do that when we are being faithful to God. And how people notice, notice those things. 
and how faith creates faith and more faith and how faith generates more faithfulness to God. Even as we go about our business, our ordinary business. Now, Ruth notices Boaz's kindness and, and uh, she asks this question in verse, verse 10, uh, middle part, that sa- she says, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? And then Boaz answers in verse 11, he says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the, do- the death of your husband has been fully told me. He's taken notice of her even before he met her. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Faith begets faith. And faithfulness begets more faithfulness. And so um, Ruth takes notice of Naomi. And now Boaz takes notice of Ruth. And now pretty soon the whole town takes notice of what's happening. And something beautiful is being put together here before their very own eyes. And so Boaz and Ruth meet at the threshing floor. As a matter of fact, it was Ruth that instigates the whole thing. Something a little bit, you know, kind of risque, if you were to ask me. But Ruth was able to keep her integrity intact. She, you know, because of her, uh, with her uh, mother-in-law's uh, um, with her mother-in-law's advice, she sheds her, um, her widow's dress, which in those days would have been a very drab, very, you know, black dress and so on and so forth. And she sheds that and, and she instructs her, her sister, her daughter-in-law to go and find, look for, for, for uh, Boaz, who, she, who uh, Naomi had researched for that day, for that night, that, you know, that, that uh, Boaz will be at the threshing floor guarding his, uh, his harvest. Uh, and he's going to be sleeping there tonight. And so I need you to do this. And Ruth follows her mother-in-law's advice. She sleeps at the foot of Boaz and unfolds a, a section of, of, the, uh, of, of the blanket covering his feet and then Boaz is startled in the middle of the night to find this lovely woman, young woman, sleeping at his feet. And then Ruth makes it known, plain to Boaz. You are nearest, my nearest kinsman. Will you be my kinsman redeemer? Will you marry me? I mean... It's, it's unheard of in, in, that, in that culture, in that patristic culture for a woman like Ruth to do this. And Boaz goes to work and he did not rest the following day until he was able to accomplish what Ruth had requested of him. Take a look at what happens in chapter 4 verse 1. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin of, whose Bo- of whom Boaz had spoken came passing by there again. It seems like something is happening behind the scene here 
or somebody, somebody is, somebody is uh, kind of, uh, you know, or orchestrating, you know, the events behind the scene. And this, whoever this person is, 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 is going to go unnoticed until the very end of the story. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down than there, there than the next of kin, there was a closer person that could marry Ruth. There was a, a practice, it's called the levirate marriage. We've heard of this time and again in our reading of the Old Testament, that if a, a close relative of yours, if you know, the man dies and leaves behind a, a land uh, and, and, and a widow, and you are supposed to marry that widow for the sake of that departed uh, uh, relative of yours to perpetuate his line, his lineage. You are to marry that person, the, the widow, for the man's sake. Not for yours necessarily, for the man's sake. And it's not often, it's not very often, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's not something that available men were always willing to do because there were always, there were always, you know, negative sides to, ne- negative effects to, to doing something like that. And apparently, there was a closer kin to the, uh, to the, to Elimelech's line, but then when he realizes that he's going to be marrying a Moabitess widow, he shirked. And in comes Boaz, and Boaz does the rest. He brings in all the elders of the town there at the center of, t- of the town and makes them witnesses to this marriage. He is going to be the kinsman redeemer to Ruth. And by doing that, Boaz turns a tragedy into a comedy. The story that was going to end in the complete annihilation, discontinu- this, discontinuance of the, line, of the line of Elimelech ends up becoming the very line through whom Jesus Christ would come. It's a beautiful story of how faithfulness begets faithfulness. And how God... You might ask, where was God in all this? You may have noticed, as you read in in, in times past, as you read the book of Ruth, that God was mentioned only a few times, a handful of times, three, four times. God never took an active role, in, at least in the writing of this book. We don't see God actively working to do anything for anybody. And yet, God was. He was working behind the scenes, weaving together the ordinary faithfulness of his people in order to bring about something beautifully ordinary. And through the life and through the actions of those people, faithful people, in, amidst the sea of unfaithfulness, he's able to thread his, you know, his... Uh, uh, salvation story into their lives, weave it through their lives so that they become part of this larger story of redemption for the world. Naomi's faith. Ruth takes notice of Naomi. 
Ruth's faith, Boaz takes notice of Ruth's faith. God, well, he takes notice the whole time. God was in the background, behind the scenes. And those words that we find in in three places in the book of Ruth, in chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, as it happened, well, it wasn't just happening. It was God making it happen. And that word or that phrase um, in chapter 2, verse 4 of Ruth, just then when when, uh, Boaz arrives, well, it wasn't just happenstance. God was weaving their stories together. You feel sometimes that your life is just too ordinary, that it's not being woven by anybody, it doesn't mean a thing. Don't ever think that. Because God, if God is the sovereign of the universe, then he's also doing to your life what he did to Ruth's life, what he did to Naomi's life, what he did to Boaz's life, so that their ordinary, very ordinary lives became extraordinary. Your ordinary life, my ordinary life, all our lives become extraordinary because of God. There are two different ways to understand God's sovereignty. One is to see God as decreeing all things and all things must, you know, must obey his decrees and must happen as he wills it. Um, and, you know, that's kind of an all-encompassing kind of thing. So that, that's one way of understanding um, God's sovereignty. Another way of understanding God's sovereignty is this, that God steps back behind the scenes, behind the curtains, as it were, rolls up his sleeves and works with our decisions and circumstances to bring about his redemptive purposes and weaves his redemptive purposes in and around our lives so that so as to redeem not just you and me but also through you and me to redeem the world that's how he does it that's how he always does does things he gets dirty he doesn't just decree he comes down to our level and, high, and, and, and goes unseen in, the, in those ordinary moments of faithfulness where we think nobody is paying attention to what we're doing. And we find, we find in the story of Ruth that God does not need to appear for him to pay attention. He is paying attention. And he is trying to weave your life into the fabric of his story of redemption for the world. Which brings us to why we have started VBS. It may appear to some of us, who, some of you who, uh, you know, go back 16, 15 years ago to the last time we did VBS, that this, our church may have forever graduated from VBS. No, we haven't. We just took a very long rest. Now we're ready to get, to, to get going again. Because you see, VBS is an example of ordinary faithfulness. All of you that have worked here, unheralded, spoke with one of you and just uh, yesterday, and I wasn't able to go to all of the, uh, uh, the different stations, and I should have known better because this lady was wearing a shirt that says, fiercely faithful, faithful. of course, she's, she's a staff. 
And I made the mistake of asking, did you participate this week? <laughs> and the question and the retort was, where were you all week? Because <laughs> I was in that room. I said, oh, yeah, I was in this, you know. And, and, and so, you know, the ordinary things that we do, the, our faithfulness to God matters not only to God, but to everyone who might be paying attention to what we're doing. Because out of our faithfulness might come a Ruth, might come a Boaz. The entire city of Auburn might be paying attention to what we do here, whether we're beautifully carrying out our ordinary lives for the, for the glory of God. They're paying attention, and God is weaving their lives with our lives to put together a tapestry of redemption for everyone. That's why we do VBS, even if it costs a lot of money. And most of you may feel that it's a thankless job. Well, it's not a thankless job. First of all, thank you. Thank you to all of you that have given of yourselves this week. Let's do it again next year and the year after that and the year after that. Let's not tire of doing this because out of our ordinary faithfulness, might come a beautiful Ruth and a beautiful Boaz. And for, all, for, for, for the prospect of those, we'll keep doing this until Jesus comes. So here I want to end uh, by saying thank you to the person who's led the charge for us all this time. And I wish that, you know, I could... Well, I'm thanking all of you, but if I were to give everybody a, a, uh, a gift, um, we would easily double our budget. <laughs> but we are, my wife and I are inviting you over to our house next Sabbath for a victory party, lunch uh, on us, and, and you're all invited, all the staff, and even the children and the family, if, if you care to come to our home, you're most welcome uh, to our home. And let's celebrate together um, how, how faithful God has been to us on our very first VBS in over 15 years. So now I want to ask, uh, let's see, my wife to come up here. We have a short, I mean, a, a small gift in behalf of the church family. And this gift is not just going to one person. Symbolically, this, this goes to all of you. We're giving this gift to Grace and through grace, this goes out from our heart to you who, who have helped us in our VBS this year. Grace, would you please come? And uh, I know, I know, it's, it's, let's give her a hand. Grace has a story to tell about her own involvement in VBS and and, but, you know, I'm not here to tell you her story. I'll let, you, I'll let her tell that story to you some of the time. But Grace did tell me that this year it felt to her that this is, she's been really moved by God to do this and to do this only for him. So Grace, on behalf of all of us, we want to thank you for putting this together. And God bless you. You are our Ruth.
And Jim, there you are, Jim. Thank you for, thank you for letting us borrow Ruth. And the boys, thank you so much. Grace, thank you. Thank you so much. Would you like to say something? Um. The mic is right there. It'll pick you up. I guess just one word. Um, remember, I did a little cheer up here in the beginning. So I said, give me a V. v. Give me a B. v. Give me an S. S. Spells. VBS. I'm going to give you a three-letter word because that's all I got right now. <laughs> give me an o. o. Give me an N. And give me an E. e. Now I want you to go to John 17, 21. And that's the dates that we have for VBS. And then you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay? All right. Okay. You'll have to do that after the service. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'm going to take a little bit of time and read what John 17, 20 and 21 says, because Grace talked to us last night, and she said in our little worship all together that we have right before VBS, she said, God impressed me, and this week, July 17 through 21, has been so faithful, and everyone has been so faithful in showing up, and God has been faithful in showing up here. So this is what it says. John 17, 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let us pray. Now to God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. God bless you. Have a great Sabbath. We'll see you again next Sabbath.